because when you get into certain categories, whether it be how to be a good neighbor, uh, what does it mean to be in community together? Uh, what does it mean to be a family? What does it mean to love your wife and to have children? And the things that have historically been the most meaningful in life, none of those are measured in terms of efficiency. And so when efficiency becomes the primary currency, we don't know how to process meaning outside of mathematically innumerable things. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host Nathan Rittenhouse. I think we should talk about lab-grown meats (laughs) as an entry point (laughs) into a discussion of what it means to be human and also what happens when so many of us aren't producers these days. But my thoughts were kicked into action here by an article I came across in the New Atlantis, and we'll link to it in the show notes, about ostensibly about chickens, but really about what it means to be a person in the modern world. It's it's one of the better, I would put it in, in my 2023 best essays if I was if I were mm, making high praise a compilation. Right yeah, it's very well written and it's just it's just a great piece of writing. I would highly recommend it, whether you're interested in whether you think you're interested in chickens or not, I think this would be really good. But it, what what came very clearly into my head as I read it was, I would love Nathan's perspective on this. He's, he will have a much more informed opinion than I do. But I really wanted to talk a little bit about, so some of the considerations that the, that the article puts forward are basically the, the amount of food and consumption that happens in the world these days obviously is very very high but also some amazing some seeming benefits we've we've knocked out not completely but famine has largely become something of the past now which is pretty remarkable with Mm -hmm. food production you know being what it is today but also some of what the article is looking at is not so much whether we're going to have you know, lab-grown meats as something that replaces, you know, real chicken and real meats that we have right now. I think he's more looking at how the arguments for lab-grown food, lab in this case, lab-grown meats, are hard to push against in today's modern world because we so prize mass efficiency mm-hmm. to get as much stuff to as many people as possible he also notes some of the deplorable conditions that many of these animals endure. So in this case, chickens, you know, crammed tons of them together. Not m- many of them, I think, what are they called, Nathan? I'm, meat hens, right? Or, or are they just called meat birds? Meat birds, yeah. Yeah, right. So those those meat birds are, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to enumerate everything that happened. They go through, they go through a lot. They don't lead the traditional life of a chicken. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> this is not your, so. This is a modern, not a traditional he chicken. Out, right. Well, I mean, so yeah. Even in terms of its lifespan, where it lives, you know, the whole assembly line of how they're how they're you know executed and then and then you know mass produced. But he he basically says it's very difficult if you if you just look at all of that to make serious arguments against lab grown meats because it just seems at least in the modern mindset, hey, well, this is this is the next leap forward. We have the technology. We can continue to mass produce. And in the process, we can reduce cruelty to animals. That's a good thing. Continue to feed tons of people. That's a great thing. And 
for all intents and purposes, all things being equal, this meat probably should be safe. So we, we can bracket that for a second <laughs> because probably we don't know. <laughs> and he makes that clear. But Nathan, when you were when you and I were discussing this article a little bit, one of the points that you that you brought brought out was that in modern society, so often we're we're not producers anymore. We don't make much. But you think that that's actually a very important part of what it means to be a person, and you linked it to a number of different problems. So I'm just curious about how that stood out to you, Nathan, as you're reading about chickens <laughs> well cameron you're in dangerous territory here let me i'm going to make an audacious claim you can tell me if you think this is well i think that i know more about chickens than you do about horror films and that's that's not denigrating your knowledge to that of the already. horror world yeah, but no. since i was a very yeah little boy chickens have been a big part of my life and so i can pontificate on the ins and outs of mm -hmm. all sorts of forms of chickens from uh, the meat bird side of things to old American heritage breeds and lots of foul thoughts there. Uh, lots of foul thoughts. Yeah. yeah. So I think okay. the 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 argument that's being made is he's saying, look, if you have a if you have a problem with lab grown meats, which I think a lot of people do have, sort of an like uh, that does something doesn't sound quite right about that. It's hard to argue with the math. Yeah. You kind of have an intuitive that that's that's not natural. But what he's saying in the argument is that most Americans haven't looked at what a modern meat bird is. And that's also a creature that's highly unnatural and is built specifically for the efficiency that it produces. Um, and I'm familiar with those. I think my neighbors and I, uh, last time we killed about 100 of those a couple weeks ago, months ago. Um, and many people listening, I know people who listen to this podcast who also uh, farm them on small scales and large scales and turkeys included. Um, and whether or not they have a inner psychological life would be debatable on some fronts. But yeah, they are a totally you would they would not survive in the wild on their own. They have no really deep um chicken type instincts of what you think about when you think about a chicken running around on your grandmother's farm. They are a thing that are specifically bred from four distinct genetic lines and then produced in one unit with the purpose of turning the least amount of food into the most amount of meat in the fastest way possible because ultimately you can critique the the system but the system produces what the customer pays for and everybody wants boneless skinless chicken breasts for 99 cents a pound or whatever it's going for these days. Um, that's what the market demands. Very few people want to pay $27 for their chicken um, at the farmer's market that, you know, and, and that can be overdone in both directions. But I'm just saying the reason that the system is that way is not because of a maniacal maniac somewhere who's interested in some odd form of animal torture or something it's because it's exactly the customer gets what they pay for is what i'm saying so it's an indictment of all of humanity's or voting on voting with our feet here yeah. yeah we vote with our feet and with our dollars and i think you know the the author of the article that you mentioned does a great job of pointing out this is largely how the world is being fed and there are some phenomenal benefits to it so there's that element of it however if we bring this back around to saying okay well, the lab-grown meat thing is just the next logical step in the trajectory of increased efficiency. Then we have to ask ourselves the question, is efficiency actually the only goal that we have in life as humans? And therein lies the rub of when do we have a conviction about efficiency and when do we not? Because, hey, it is pretty great probably to be able to go and buy 
cheap chicken. Um, and I'm fortunate to live in a mm -hmm. spot where I haven't bought chicken or eggs for a very long time. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that this is the way that most of the world works on these things. So it's, it's a, it, it, the, the brilliance of the essay is that it's using the chicken sort of as a window into the modern human psyche of what it means to be a modern human and looking at sort of our um, mm -hmm. quasi deification of the concept of efficiency. And then he's got one section in there where he talks about basically how it is good for you in that it builds character to have, even if you live in the suburbs, to have a tomato plant in your backyard. And he talks about the strain or, or having chickens. He, th he basically, I think he has a line in there where he says everybody should have chickens. Yeah. In yeah, their everybody yard. Should. Everybody should have chickens. Everybody should experience the strange paradox of killing weeds so that your one plant in this case the tomato can thrive and then feeling that strange pang of sadness when you have a hen die even though so many you know so many countless anyway. chickens yeah. you know give their lives for the freezer section in your grocery store but he's talking about an intimate relationship with the food that you have cultivated he talks about how it tastes better and it's better for you not just not just in the sense that it you know it it is nourishes your body in a better way, but that it actually psychologically is better for you to be busy in that kind of way. That well, was another interesting point. And it runs the risk. And he knows this of, of sounding impractical. And he, and he knows how impractical it sounds too. He's a very self-aware writer, but again, on an intuitive level, it's hard to argue with him. You, you kind of recognize instantly. No, that sounds right. <laughs> oh, well, so the fun thing here is I could guess what Wendell Berry would say in response to this essay, because one of the things that, the author is Garth Brown, by the way, is saying, is that, is there a way to make agriculture more human? And I'm pretty sure the Wendell Berries of the world right. would say, animal agriculture used to be called animal husbandry. The, like the histo mm -hmm. historically yep. agriculture was of, was the human endeavor. If you look even back into Genesis, agriculture was the fundamental human endeavor. So, some of what he's pointing to as a possibility for the future isn't quite as crazy when we recognize that it has been the story of the human past, but it doesn't work in a system where less than 1% of the population is feeding everybody else. So, so that's the challenge. It definitely is more efficient for one and a half percent of the population to grow all of the food for everybody else. But it raises the fundamental question of what then do ninety eight point five percent of what is yeah what is ninety eight point five percent of the population supposed to be doing with all the time that is now freed up because they don't have to be complicit in the production of the things that sustains them. So either that's a liberation from a system, which is beautiful if you're only looking at it in terms of economics and efficiency, but it could also be depressing if you're thinking about it in terms of human value and human purpose. And what it is that we were created to do. So I think that's the direction that this essay helps us kind of start asking questions in. That's an odd point to make though, Nathan, because we most of most people work really hard so that they can have more free time. And mm. try, or, you know, try to find ways to front load their year or their day, whatever it is, so that they can then the goal, the light at the end of the tunnel, is leisure you know, free time. And it seems that you're suggesting that I don't think you're saying anything. So I think we can make some, we're going to have to make some important distinctions here between 
recreation or leisure and actual rest. Rest is mm-hmm. rest is good, but you seem to be suggesting at least that all the free time, that's the phrase you used, free time. Yeah. The free time that we have now is not such a good thing. And we have more free time here at least in the in the west than people ever have had historically. Am I hearing you correctly though? Yeah. Are you saying Ooh. that that's probably not great? Okay, so let's 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 take an aside here and you tell me if I overspoke. Um, so last week I was speaking to a group of um, students and we were doing a, a unit on mental health and I was doing a, a section on the attributes of a healthy mind. And I think I've slowly sh- moved in the direction of having more certainty on this because it's, it's I'm going to about to make a bold claim, but I think it works out. And this is, I'm getting as a, a theological basis of what we think about when we think what it means to be made in the image of God. And we think of God as a creator and then what are the attributes of God, the communicable attributes? So what are the things that God gives us mm-hmm. as part of our nature that are a reflection of who and how he is that we're supposed to be doing? And it's getting harder for me to see a future or a capacity in which we see mentally healthy humans who aren't doing something productive with their hands. So we, we've almost separated out our minds mm-hmm. and our bodies in an old school Greek dualism to the point that we can't make a connection between our mental health and our physical bodies. Now, most people listening to this, and I think our age group and younger do see this of, hey, exercise does wonderful things for your mind. I think you can nod along and attest to that, Cameron. You may be having an off day, but you go get that endorphin rush. You get your mm-hmm. body in motion. Um, but, and I, I mean, I run on a treadmill sometimes, which is kind of funny. Like you burn a lot of energy and go nowhere. But is there a, a deeper level of that where... <laughs> embedded within us is this idea that we need to be creating and building and doing stuff with our hands. So whether you're making pottery, you're knitting, you're building that garden box in the backyard, you're working on a birdhouse, you're um, wrenching on your bike, um, whatever it is that something embedded within what it means to be fully human is using the physical bodies that we have to dream and to create and to produce and bring into being actual things in the world. And I'm not talking just about children here but also about like manipulating reality and forming things that are then useful, whether it be mm-hmm. aesthetic or um, food. So I'm it, in my mind, it's getting harder for me to make a list of people who I think have mentally stable lives who are working solely in a theoretical realm. Uh, and so I'm not saying everybody has to go out and well, be he, a professional farmer, yeah. but I'm just saying there is something about what it means to mm-hmm. be fully human where efficiency is not the goal but connection with reality is satisfying. So don't outsource and things that used to bring humans satisfaction yeah. and then be surprised if you're uneasy in life. Well, yeah, and then tellingly along those very lines, Nathan, in, in the article, he talks about the, I think, is it is it called a chicken reactor? <laughs> when they're producing this with the lab-grown meat. Oh, yeah, like I think, yeah. But, oh, and you see, like, all the big uh, steel tubes, and, yeah, it looks very, uh, it's a very yep. high-tech thing to... It's very sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. But he he points out that this is this is yet another step in, in kind of distancing us from reality. Again, he, use, he uses that very phrase. And that, so something else, another another piece of technology potentially severing that fundamental connection. How And so I suppose it's not too su- surprising then that a lot of people, a lot of us wander around feeling 
lost and without purpose and just not and just having a, a general sense of of not knowing where we're going well, well here's when an we're so thought. disassociated from well you often talk about the idea that america is one of the few cultures where everybody wants to grow up to be teenagers is it, how do you say that is that one of your lines or where did that come from yeah i mean this is yeah well america is one of the few countries where people want to grow up to be a teenager yeah yeah but so when you say that what what is it Define teenager there just real quickly. What are those characteristics? I think, well, adolescence usually has to do with trying to find out who you are, find yourself and really cherish experience, explore. But you ask questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? How do I define my identity? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And and figure out how you fit in the world. So what's interesting about that statement, though, is that and and many people have written about this is that the the category of teenager is a totally modern concept. There, I mean, so there have always been people who's yeah who yeah. you know who have been sixteen years old. That's always been there. But the idea that you have sort of, of this like yes. twelve to eighteen year old range where you don't know what to do with your life, and that and mm-hmm. sociologists will say like, what is a twelve to eighteen year old supposed to do in our modern culture? Well, they're there to study or to go to school to get good grades to get into a good school or something totally future tense there there's very little they're supposed purpose. to find themselves nathan you you find yourself yeah. and you get ready for the next thing and so there's there's very little responsibility mm-hmm. that happens in that category um and i can point back just two generations um you know on one side i can you know my my one grandfather started milking cows at 5 30 in the morning when he was nine years old and on the other side my grandfather can talk about you know, sitting on the tobacco wagon along the road in order to to bargain the sale with the buyer. Um, and, you know, back yep. before they knew tobacco was bad. And so here I grew up with two grandfathers who, from the time they were nine years old, thought that they were economically essential to their family's business mm-hmm. and integrated in a way that they had a, they didn't have to go figure out like, what's the purpose for my life when you're milking cows at 530 in the morning kind of thing. Now, you could ask some questions about what do I want to do with my life if you're milking cows at 5.30 in the morning, and I think a lot of young men and women have. Sure. But all that to say is that we live in a culture that wants to grow up to be teenagers, but that category of teenager is a totally new thing in the history of humanity in the same way. So we live in a culture that is pursuing an ideal that never really existed, I guess is what I'm saying. So it's almost like we're trying to find Hey, it's better not only if you don't have to grow your own chicken, but if somebody will cook it for you, then you've arrived in our modern culture. You have enough money to have somebody else do the necessities for you. So we're pursuing a thing that has never actually existed in a stable way, and that needs to be pointed out as we go by. Well, and now it's time to meddle. And it's not too much of a leap, though. We're talking about disconnecting former traditions from, from their roots or former ways of life from their roots. Yeah, so so it's not too big of a leap now to think about marriage increasingly now, kids being an optional extra. Well, they're not efficient. Again, a mindset. Right, they're not. And well, and and it's well, thinking of children in in terms of mainly choice, rather than thinking of that as the end in terms of telos, the end of marriage. Not the only Hmm. part of marriage but an essential feature, procreation, children. But now you have, so now you've got lots of younger people, plenty of them actually Christian. And I'm mentioning this not to be annoying, but because it's my experience that a lot of people 
younger believers haven't thought through this very carefully who basically think, no, no, I mean, we, we've, we've thought this through and, you know, economically it doesn't make much sense to, to have some children. And also, you know, we have other goals, we have other values. And I think that's a very problematic stance and is emblematic of this kind of modern mindset of moving further and further away from reality. And yeah, looking at the world in terms, yeah, we're, we're, we've, we've just never looked at it like this before. And it's a unique, this is a unique place to, to be, but it's mm-hmm. funny how a chicken leads us in all these directions, <laughs> but I think it, it's a direct outgrowth of this conversation. Yeah. Well, and, and so there's a technological component to this that we want to point out. So you can look at basically the standard chicken before World War One, um, And actually I have, I have a, a little flock of American Dominex, the oldest heritage breed in the U.S. And we run them with our other chickens and kind of neat just to keep an old as one of our friends calls the Abraham Lincoln's chickens. Um, and it is a totally different creature <laughs> than, than the modern chicken. Um, but up until, but chickens are difficult to mass produce without a lot of grain. And up until, you know, a more industrial post-war era, it was hard to have the fertilizer capacity and the technology to harvest enough grain fast enough to really justify commercial scale chicken production, whether that be egg laying or mass meat production. And so we needed a technological advance in order to mechanize essentially grain production at a low enough price point that it made sense to feed it to chickens in order to gain the byproducts from the chicken rather than consume the grain directly itself. So there are these technological advances mm-hmm. at each step that enable increased efficiency. And so the the technology and efficiency um, train wagon, you know, train cars are hitched to each other all the way through this. Mm-hmm. And those have had phenomenal untold blessings in our modern world. We just have to ask ourselves as Christians, is, is that always the goal? Because when you get into certain categories, whether it be how to be a good neighbor, uh, what does it mean to be in community together? Uh, what does it mean to be a family? What does it mean to love your wife and have children? And the things that have historically been the most meaningful in life, none of those are measured in terms of efficiency. And so when efficiency becomes the primary currency, we don't know how to process meaning outside of mathematically innumerable things. And and that seems to be a fundamental tension of the modern era. Well, and then the other one though, Nathan is free. Okay. Free, free to have, yeah, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to worry about my food. I don't have to worry about producing any of it. Free to do what? Yeah, that what else increasingly is a dilemma for people because here's the irony hanging over this, Nathan, we need more free time. You know, we, it's great to have all of these different technologies. They're so convenient. They'll give us more free time, more free time, more free time. And then we have this crisis of meaning and purpose hanging over us. And people are in so much unbearable, and that's not overstated, psychic pain. If you look at the suicide rates, if you look at depression rates. So there's... There's something deeply mysterious about the human, but then there are other aspects that just aren't not that mysterious. We've progressively worked away from, you know, basically normal habits of being a person. And now we come to a place where we don't even know what it means to be a person. And we feel profoundly lonely and lost. Now, you mentioned younger people are are getting wind of this. And I think you're right. A lot of younger people do have come to recognize the limits of technology, both in terms of what it can can give you and why it's, you know, and, and efficiency, but also in terms of the 
your sense of purpose and meaning in life. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are getting chickens are, you know, they do have, you know, little, they've got gardens and now they're, they're they are, there is a des- desire and it's not just a kind of hipster impulse. There's something deeper going on there. I think people are recognizing the need to get back in touch with reality. Well, and you know, what's funny about this is technology is part of the solution here. So a lot of people, hmm. another um, irony. Yeah. Another irony. A lot of people here aren't going to have, um, their great grandmother is not a- around to teach them how to raise chickens or grow peas. That's reality. But you know what? There are a lot of YouTube videos out there about how to do all of this stuff. And so there's a sense in which there is a way in which people are now using technology to learn about another way of doing things. And so, yeah, it's a, Mm -hmm. so yeah, don't hear me. And I love efficiency. I have more spreadsheets for more things than most people do in my life, you know, and I, and I like to keep track of of things (laughs) and I love numbers. Um, and so I'm I'm not anti-efficiency. No, efficiency fact, is a, a wonderful yeah. servant. It's just a terrible master. Yeah. I think that's a good line there. Yeah, that it there there isn't actually, oh, here's a question. <laughs> if you look at take any story in the Bible, all right. If you look at all the stories in the Bible, which one is the most efficient? What is the most efficient use of like when does right. God act the most efficiently? I mean, mm-hmm. other than the angel of the Lord wiping out like 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Um, you know, there, there aren't a lot of like deeply meaningful things don't happen in the context of efficiency. I'm, I'm saying that as a statement, but it's a little bit of a question as well. Well, if, yeah, if you're, so God in his mercy is after the moral good. And this is also why the ways of God and the, the way of the cross looks like foolishness to the world. He's not after a finished product, so to speak. Not hmm. in those terms. I mean, God is when when it comes to his interactions with his creatures, with human beings, he's he's after their moral good, and <laughs> that comes at a pace that's often inc- pretty torturously slow, and involves a pretty roundabout trip. I mean, let's face it that the the trek through the wilderness for the Israelites wasn't exactly a very efficient journey, <laughs> not a great shortcut. And but the human heart isn't. <laughs> yeah, no, right. The but the human heart is very yeah i mean this you're talking about the crooked timber of humanity Mm. so but there is something there's a practical outworking of that for all of us though here too that's again that's not to fly in the face of efficiency again nathan and i both like efficiency it's a good thing but it's to recognize that part of our own moral development sometimes requires that we we go we put more work into something and maybe and keep efficiency in its proper place regard efficiency as a as a tool rather than an, a means to an end, rather than an end in and of itself. Cameron, do you remember the video game Guitar Hero? Do you know what that is? Oh, yes. Yeah, so I like when I was of course, like, yes. co- oh, college yeah, era, Guitar yeah. Hero, did you ever play Guitar Hero? I never had it, but I saw lots of people playing it. I did. Um, so I remember, so Guitar Hero... <laughs> no, I actually played I don't it. I it's still around. Yes. All right, listen up, all you youngers. Back in our day, um, this wasn't even on a three and a half inch floppy disk. This was like legit. So you had a, a fake guitar that had, how did it work? Were they colored keys, like five maybe buttons on the neck of the guitar? Anyway, so it was a fake guitar. And I and, and then you would follow along on the screen and try to push the buttons and, and strum on beat and play all these crazy riffs. And one day I saw a guy standing out in the hallway of our dorm room 
so he couldn't see the TV, but mm-hmm. he was playing this crazy song on the guitar. I mean, and it was an impressive, complex song that he was playing. And I was standing there watching because he had it memorized, and that's what he was proving to everybody, that he could play this song from memory. And I thought, you know what? The amount of effort that it took to do that, you could actually have learned that on a real guitar in that amount of time. Or there's another thing when, when Facebook came out, there's like Farmville or something. I would see people like playing with their little pretend farms on their phones. Oh yeah. And I was thinking, man, if you look up the hours that people are racking up on that, it would be faster just to have some chickens in your backyard. Wow. Yeah. Um, you forgot all about Farmville. Yeah. This is a blast from the past. And I'm just saying we, we live in a time in which there are these (laughs) synthetic approximations of like, what if you just learned to play the real guitar Mm -hmm. instead of the video game version of it? What if you actually Mm -hmm. did just get two chickens instead of playing the Farmville Facebook version of that? Um, and so I think those are the types of questions that are worth us asking of saying one of these will be more convenient, but we'll probably learn more about how the world actually works and find more satisfaction in that exploration. It will require more responsibility. And that's the other odd cousin of efficiency yep. is that efficiency often lets us deny responsibility because it outsources it to someone else. But when we're increasing the level of responsibility in our lives, we find that the meaning and significance and satisfaction that we find in it also increases proportionately as well. So I, I think we could preach on that here, but we won't. We'll just let you draw your own conclusions there and, and ask some tough questions about what do you fundamentally want to be doing with your time and how do you think about these things? What does this say about you? And then an essay like how we think about chickens suddenly gives us some good insight on um, hmm. the inner workings of our own character and mind and how we think about really all of reality and our lives. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.